Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard, or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. A few months ago, Robin and I, we went to Hungry Jack's. Big event, big event. Um, now, my problem is the burger that I used to like, they stopped making that one. And so well, I had a dilemma. I'm actually going to have to think about what I'm going to eat. And, but my problem was solved for me because when we walked in the door, there was that sign that I got a picture of up there. And I thought, you beauty, I reckon I've found my new burger. And so I said, Robin, order me one of them. And she did. She ordered me a Roadhouse Whopper. And I went outside and, and I found a table for us. And I eagerly waited because I was really, really hungry. And I knew that my Roadhouse Whopper was on its way with bacon cheese and special sauce, as the picture told me. Now, do you suppose that the meal that arrived was anything like that picture? Does anyone believe that it was? Well, let me tell you, when, when it arrived, there was this, it was in this tiny box. And I sort of thought, wow, it's, this box must be like the Tartus. Like, how, how did they cram that whole burger into there? And I opened it up, and there was a fair bit of airspace. 
And, and then I looked at the burger itself, and there's only one meat patty. So I thought, oh, they made a mistake. So I went up to the counter, and of course there was a line up there, and, but when I finally got through, I said, look, you guys, you made a mistake. There's only one meat patty on this. They said, well, you only ordered one meat patty. I said, no, I ordered a Roadhouse Whopper and there's a picture of it there and it definitely has two meat patties. And they said, no, 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 no. If you want two meat patties, you have to order the second meat patty and pay extra for the second meat patty. Now, knowing my rights as a consumer, I'm pretty sure that I could have taken the matters a bit further. Um, but then I thought, you know what? Given that Jesus said, if anyone takes your shirt, let him have your cloak as well, I thought, I guess it's only a burger. And I went and sat down, very disappointed. And what about you? Have you ever been disappointed with something? When you've been waiting for something that was promised, but when it turned up, it was nothing like what it was supposed to be. Like the burger that never looked like the poster or the boyfriend who never turned out to be such a nice guy after all, or the holiday at the Sunshine Coast where you never saw the sun because it rained every day, or that new car that had the fuel economy sticker on the windscreen that told you that you were gonna get eight litres per 100 kilometres and you can't get any, any better than 11, or that really highly rated movie that you went to and you fell asleep during the movie. We, we all get disappointed when what was promised is, turns out to be nothing like what we get. Well, as a Christian, I am certain that eternal life in Christ Jesus is exactly as promised. Our God, who never lies, has promised us this. He promised it before the ages began, and at just the right point in history, Jesus came. He suffered and he died on the cross and he rose again. And at just the right point in time, the word, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ began to be preached right across the world and it's continuing to be preached today. And as the word of God is preached today, the, the truth of the gospel is manifested. That means that, that it's revealed. It comes alive. It comes alive in the words of the one who preaches it. It comes alive in the hearts and the minds and in the life of the hearer. God never lies. He can be depended upon entirely. Our God is completely trustworthy. Now, I've given today's message the title keeping the trustworthy faith the common faith, keeping the gospel that we preach true to God's word, keeping the trustworthy faith the common faith. Paul was called as an, as an apostle and his calling as an apostle and, and the very purpose of this letter is for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And that sets the tone of this whole letter. The trouble is, sometimes the gospel that is promised gets changed into something else. And that also is what's at play in this letter. So let's set the scene. 
Today is the very first of our new series on the book of Titus. It's only going to be a very short series because Titus is only three chapters and we're going to cover the whole of chapter one today. Um, so it only leaves two chapters to go. So Paul is writing a letter to Titus, um, which is one of the pastoral epistles. So the pastoral epistles are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus, but they're not written in that order. The first one was, was 1 Timothy, and we believe Paul wrote that um, from up in Macedonia, north of Greece. And then the second letter he wrote was this one, which he wrote to Titus. Now, we're not actually told exactly where he is, but he's somewhere, he's either at Macedonia, or he's somewhere between Macedonia and a place called Nicopolis, because we know that he's going to be on his way to Nicopolis, because in this very letter, he says to, to Titus, come and visit me in Nicopolis. And then the final one he wrote was 2 Timothy, which is the letter that we've just finished studying. Um, and he wrote that while he was in prison in Rome, awaiting his execution. So it's a letter to Titus. Who is that? Well, Titus was a very trusted fellow missionary of Paul's. He describes him here as my true child, in a common faith. Having a common faith, that's what makes us closer than family. Um, I've encouraged you many, many times that when you go away for a weekend or when you're on holidays, go and visit a local church. Um, and if you can, have a, have a bit of a look on the internet and see what sort of local church it is that you're going to visit. Um, see what they teach and, and what, they, what they stand for. And I love doing that when I'm on holidays. We, we end up in another town and, and we visit another church and we realise these people and I, we, we have a common faith. We share the one Lord and Saviour. And, and you just feel like you've instantly found a home. Now, I've been to many churches where that's been the case. I've been to a few churches where you've felt like a fish out of water. It's just, yeah... We don't have a common faith here. Things are all a bit different. Anyway, Titus, he had a good, solid, grounded faith. And, and Paul used to deploy Thomas, uh, sorry, Titus. Did I say Thomas or Titus before? I keep getting them mixed up. Titus. Titus had a good, solid, grounded faith. I'm sure Timothy did as well and Thomas. Um, but, but Paul used to just deploy Titus to the troubled spots. So, for instance, when, when church in Corinth was running amok, he sent Titus there to sort him out. And then when Titus and Paul visited Crete, Paul realised this place is a real mess. And he realised that they needed more time than he could spare. And so when Paul had to move on, he left Titus there to sort them out. And that's where Titus is. He's in Crete when he gets this letter from Paul. Where's Crete? Does anyone know where Crete is? Oh, I've got the map up. That's cheating. Uh, Crete, it's an island, which is part of the Roman Empire, at least it was then, and it's quite a large island in the Mediterranean Sea, southeast of Greece. And it's bigger than what we think. Uh, it's actually 20% bigger than New Zealand. Um, things get a bit out of perspective on our maps because New Zealand's a lot lower in the latitude, whereas this place isn't so far from the, from the um, equator. So it's quite a large island. But what about the people? 
Well, the description of the people in Crete isn't very flattering. And the things that Paul says here, uh, let's face it, if he said something like that today, he would get himself into an awful lot of trouble. Uh, Facebook and Twitter would explode as the keyboard warriors accused him of being a racist, and he would be cancelled for sure. See, what Paul did was he quoted one of Crete's own philosophers. Um, and all the commentaries are, are pretty much agreed. It's most likely a bloke by the name of Epimenides, who said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Right? That's pretty harsh. But that this bloke who said that was a Cretan himself. And he said that about his own people. And Paul says, you know what? That's what they say about themselves, and it's true. They're not truthful, they're evil, they're wild, and they're just looking after themselves. Now, today, people would probably jump up and down if we dared to give a broad brush description like that of any culture. But you know what? An honest critique of our culture, or an honest critique of, of any culture, would probably say something similar. In every culture of the world, when you compare it to the light of the gospel, and when you compare it to the light and the goodness of the kingdom of God, every culture is found wanting in all sorts of ways, and we all stand condemned. And that, my friends, is the wonderful, leveling, life-giving message of the gospel. We are all sinners. We all need a saviour. And Jesus is the saviour of all who hold to the common faith. Now, the issue in Crete is some had departed from the common faith. Within the church, Paul says, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers. Basically, it wasn't only a few... He uses the word many, and they claim to have, have knowledge and were teaching a whole lot of rot, and they're upsetting people with what they taught, whole families, in fact. The gospel, as it is promised, was being corrupted. And it seems like they were concentrating on, on religious observances and the rules of men rather than grace by faith and living out our faith in godly living. Um, how do we know that? Well, he especially draws attention to those who are in the circumcision party. Uh, sounds like a rather painful sort of a party. Um, but what is that? The early church grew up out of Jewish roots, right? Jesus was a Jew. The 12 apostles were Jews. Paul was a Jew. And the sign of being a Jew for men was circumcision. But when the gospel was preached to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, they started becoming Christians. And so the church then had a, a, a question to struggle with. If these people who are not Jews have become Christians, which is part of the Jewish faith, do they also have to become Jews? Do they also have to be circumcised? Do they also have to keep our, our religious laws and regulations? Like, do they have to stop eating pork? Do they have to now keep the Sabbath? 
Do they have to wash their hands at the right time, etc., etc.? And the apostles got together and they nutted it out and they came to the conclusion, no. The mark of being a Christian isn't some kind of mark that we put on our bodies. It's not even the mark of baptism. The mark of being a Christian is being filled with the Holy Spirit. And when the Gentiles became Christians, it was evident that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. How was it evident? It was evident through um, immediately through some of the gifts of the Spirit, but it was also evident through the fruit of the Spirit growing in their lives and the way their lives were totally changed. And so if God affirmed their salvation by living in them by his Holy Spirit, then being circumcised to fulfil a religious custom or obligation was hardly necessary. And we can see this coming through in the letters of the New Testament, especially in the writings of Paul, that the purpose of the law, all of the Jewish customs and regulations that they once used to live by, was to restrain an unspiritual person. But once you become a Christian, and once the Holy Spirit is living inside of you, you are no longer an unspiritual person. The spiritual person will now live righteously, will be doing good, and will be holy and godly, not because the law requires it and because we're going to be punished if we don't do it, but because God living inside of us makes it the very natural thing to do. That if God is in us, godliness will work out through us. And that's what we call the fruit of the Spirit. And thus, we meet what the law was trying to achieve, godly living. So that was the conclusion that, that the apostles came to. But not everybody was happy with that. There was a whole bunch of people who became known as the circumcision party or the Judaizers in other parts of the Bible uh, who would teach that you are a deficient Christian because you're not a Jew and because you're not circumcised and because you don't keep these rules and regulations and because you eat meat that may have at one time been sacrificed to an idol or whatever. Now, let me tell you, it, it's not only upsetting, it's devastating to be told that because you don't have a particular thing or you don't do a particular thing, that you're a deficient as a Christian. It's devastating to be told that if you don't have a particular gift, then you're a deficient Christian. Or if you don't have the right heritage, you're a deficient Christian. Or because you don't eat the right sort of food, you're a deficient Christian. The, the way that Jesus interacted with the religious leaders of his day is, is very clear that it's not keeping religious observances and customs and practices that makes anyone holy. And so Paul says to Titus, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. All right? If God has made us pure 
what we eat doesn't make us impure. It's how we live that matters. And if we're not Christians, um, what we eat isn't going to make us pure either. It's only through, through the faith in Christ that we can be forgiven and be made pure. And if the gospel message is a gospel of grace and faith in the Lord Jesus, then to add to this the rules of men is to teach what ought not to be taught. Now, we actually see a bit of a, a, bit of a contrast here with some other letters that we've studied in the past. Other letters in the past, as people have just gone, they've gone right away from, from everything and basically it becomes a do what you like. Just keep sinning, it's all fine. And, and the, the apostles have had to write to correct that sort of error. Whereas here, it's the opposite of that. The error is those who are saying, grace isn't enough. You need to also be part of these, be doing these religious ceremonies, etc., etc. You have to jump through a few more hoops and then you'll be a better Christian. Now, sometimes, sometimes we might start to question grace ourselves and think, okay, there, there must be something else that I have to do to be a better Christian. A few more rules to keep, a few more hoops to jump through. But those who t were teaching that, Paul says, are insubordinate. They're empty talkers. They're deceivers. He says their minds and their consciences are defiled. They say they know God, but by what they do, they deny God. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. That, that's pretty scathing, isn't it? So Titus's role was twofold. To try and pull this church back into line again, to try and salvage some of what was originally taught, and secondly, to appoint elders who would be able to continue to do that, who would continue to keep the trustworthy faith, the common faith at that place, uh, once Titus had moved on. By the way, that, that's one of the main duties for an elder in the church, to ensure that what is being taught in the church is the honest, God, godly, trustworthy faith, to ensure that it is the common faith and that it's not some new novelty, but the true life-giving gospel of Christ Jesus. And so Paul gives us a description of what elders should be like. I, I'm um, continually amazed. I shouldn't be amazed anymore. I should, I should just know this, these things happen. Um, but I'm amazed at the way that God just makes things work out and line up. Um, because here we are today, we're going to be talking about elders. And after church, we're having our AGM, at which time we're going to be... Uh, voting on some new elders. So one, one elder is being renominated, and another elder is standing for nomination. And um, yeah, so for me, it, it's just amazing that, that God does this, because here we are, we're, we're discussing it again. And the main duty of an elder is to make sure that what we teach and how we live 
is the genuine, trustworthy faith that we continue to teach a gospel of grace and that we continue to live out this grace in holy living and that we should never, ever allow a message of religious customs and the rules of men or whatever myth one may want to add that we would never allow that. So we're going to be learning about elders. Now, for our folk from Cecil Plains, this is going to be like a real refresher for you guys because it was only last Sunday when I was there um, where we were in 1 Timothy chapter 3, which talks about the qualifications for an overseer or a bishop. And for the rest of us, uh, we're going to have to remember back to, I think it was May, that, that we were in that same passage, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we discovered that the qualifications for an overseer or a bishop are primarily about spiritual maturity. And it's the same for the qualifications of an elder. It's mostly about spiritual maturity. An elder should be above reproach. If they're married, one wife's enough. Uh, his children are to be believers uh, or faithful. Um, the, the, the Greek word pistis can mean believer or faithful. Um, and not open to the charge of debauchery, excuse me, or insubordination. I think 1 Timothy chapter 3 um, explained it better when he said, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. In other words, it's really about how the elder controls and disciplines his own children. If he, if he can't manage his own kids, he's probably going to have a fair bit of trouble managing a church if it runs amok. Um, you see, an elder or an overseer is acting as God's steward. What that means is the church is God's household and the steward manages God's household. And so an elder or an overseer must be above reproach. Now, I'm, I'm not repeating myself. He said it twice. So he says it twice there. Must be above reproach. Not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard or violent or greedy, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, disciplined. This is very much describing spiritual maturity. And then in verse 9, he gets to the crux of the matter for Crete and, and probably also for us. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Why is that so important? So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. It's about keeping the trustworthy faith, the common faith. Paul was reminding Titus that when he appoints elders, they should be godly men who are spiritually mature and hold to the trustworthy word of the gospel. And, and that they should know sound doctrine, that they should know Christianity as it's meant to be. And they should know it well enough that they can instruct others in what it means to be a Christian. But he's also reminding Timothy 
that for the gospel to continue as the true gospel, for the gospel to continue to be uh, preached as, as a gospel of grace, and for it to be, to, to be demonstrated with righteous conduct and holy living, and that the gospel that, that, that doesn't wander off into the rules of men and religious regulations, for that to continue, God's stewards, the elders appointed in the church, at times, they need to hold the line. And sometimes that means that they'll need to step up and take authority and rebuke those who contradict what is not true. Now, that's part of the uh, unpopular job of an elder. This is something that we always grapple with as Christians because we, we know that we need to be a people of love and acceptance and, and who welcome all people. We even welcome sinners to church. But we also know that the message of the gospel is so critical that it must be kept as it is. It must be kept true. And so when there's people who contradict it, then it's the role of an elder to step up and say, you cannot, you're not allowed to believe that in this church because it's just contrary to what the scriptures teach as the gospel is. God never lies. The gospel must continue to be the gospel as it is promised. The church must never become like that Hungry Jack's hamburger, which is a picture of ego. Oh, this is what we're like, and that's nothing like what we're like. We are to continue to be a people of grace, continue to be a people who preach salvation through Christ Jesus and, and by his own grace. We cannot start preaching that, you know, you also have to do this and you have to do that. Because um, otherwise, like that burger, it'll be terribly disappointing if we become a church who are not promised who are not as promised. The cross is enough. In the Christian church, we promise, come all ye sinners, be saved by grace and faith in Jesus Christ. And, and we teach then that, that by the Holy Spirit, we then live lives of righteousness and holiness, thus fulfilling the requirements of the law. And if we ever change that to start teaching that, that you have to keep this religious regulation or have to have this particular gift or you have to worship on a particular day of the week and if you don't do that, then you're a deficient Christian, that would be detestable. So let's keep the trustworthy faith, the common faith, because it's excellent. Why would we ever want to change it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is true and sure and guaranteed. In you, we can never be disappointed. We give you glory because we know our great hope of eternal life is sure because you never lie. And Lord, we thank you for your beautiful gospel, uncorrupted. We thank you that Jesus did everything necessary for our salvation on the cross. Lord, forgive us for whenever we've tried to add something to this. Forgive us for when we've tried to live by religious rules and regulations, and especially for when we've thrust them upon others. 
Lord, may we marvel in the joy of salvation in Christ Jesus. And Lord, as we appoint elders to this church today, we pray that you would raise up men who would be stewards in your church, loving your gospel as the gospel is, and upholding it and rebuking those who would contradict it. Lord, may we be a people who are not empty talkers. May we always live what we believe. In Jesus' name, amen.